Newtown. 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 How many more? How many more? How many more colleges? How many more classrooms? How many more movie theaters? How many more houses of faith? How many more shopping malls? How many more street corners? How many more? How many more? Enough. 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 Demand a plan. Right now. As a mom. As a dad. As a friend. As a husband. As a wife. As an American. As an American. As an American. As a human being. For the children of Sandy Hook. Demand a plan. No more lists of names. It's not too soon. It's too late. Now is the time. Before we all know someone who loved someone on that list. No more lists. No more who they might have been. No more if we had just done something yesterday. It's time. We can do better than this. We can do better than this. It's time. It's time. It's time for our leaders to act. Demand a plan. Right now. Right now. You! Demand it! Enough. 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 Perhaps maybe not comedians next time. I don't know if, I don't know if that was hard for you, but, but I mean, in the wake of all that went on, even, even then, I think seeing Will, Will Ferrell for me was hard to take serious. Um, but you know, they, they make some interesting points. I mean, first of all, enough. I, I think we can all get behind that. I think we can all agree with that, that, that we've had too many too many mass shootings. Too many. But I think their, their plea for our leaders to have a plan to solve it might be a little, a little big. I mean, those shoes might be a little bit too big to step into. I, don't, I wouldn't want to be Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton right now or ever. But, but especially, you know, as they begin to, um, you know, step in to be the next president. The weight of solving the problem of evil has now been put on the shoulders of the president, uh, which that's, that's, that's too much. And everybody wants a plan, you know, Republicans, Democrats, everyone's going to have a different kind of plan. Democrats are going to talk about gun laws. Republicans will call them gun control laws. Uh, and they'll start looking at different people groups, uh, ISIS or hate groups. We've got companies who are going to say, uh, yeah, we don't want any, any kind of guns in, on our property. And so like Disney, they're going to heighten their security and you have to go through security to make sure that there are no guns and there are no uh, violent weapons as, as you uh, take part uh, in those places. And society is going to call for greater tolerance. But, but, but I tell you what, it's a, it's a tall order for the president now and then the next president and Congress and, and whoever, whoever else is supposed to have this plan to solve it. And I tell you what, in light of recent events, the message from 2 Corinthians last week could not have been more appropriate. We, you and I, we, the church, we're ambassadors for Christ over the next few days, over the next few weeks, people will slowly begin to change their profile pictures back from something that supports Orlando to the latest selfie that they took. Hashtags will begin to disappear. Slogans will be taken down from billboards. Another news cycle will dawn. Fox and CNN will have something else to report on. Another tragedy will happen. 
the outrage in Orlando or the outrage for Orlando will cease. Community lines will reform. And we, the ambassadors for Christ here in Orlando, will be left in the wake of tragedy, in the aftermath of evil, left here to sort through the pieces, to pick up the pieces and to figure out what do we do? Most of the world is running a sprint right now, but we're running a marathon. It's, it's, it's a long haul race that we're in, and it's a beautiful opportunity, but I think the question that begins to form in light of such awful events is, what does it look like? What does it mean to be ambassadors in the aftermath? What does it look like to be an ambassador for Jesus with all the questions that are in everyone's mind, with all the pain, with all the hurt, with all the difficulty, with the different groups? How do we do this? Why don't you grab your Bibles? Let's look at the way that, that Jesus lived and the way that Jesus taught. We're going to be in Luke. I know it's shocking. We're not going to be in 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians, for that matter. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Uh, I don't want anyone to be alarmed as they look up here. I don't don't have one of the the Mosaic Bibles. Uh, I promise this is a real Bible. Um, They come in leather bound still. I I bought this recently because I was challenged um, about having something tangible rather than my, my Bible's been digital for a long time. Uh, and so as I was looking at Bibles, I actually ordered a different one than this one, but to be completely vulnerable with you, the print was too small. I couldn't, I couldn't read it, because I guess I'm getting older. Like, like, I guess that's happening. I don't know. I don't know. I've never done it before. And so I had to get another one where the print was a little bit larger. So I hope that I will read well for you today. But Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, this is to Jesus, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to the man, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Okay, you got to understand. there's always context, right? Everything that you read, there's always is context. There's always background. There's always stuff that's going on. And there's a lot of context here. Um, in Jesus' day, the law or the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures as they were called in that day, were of such importance in the minds of the Jewish people that were left that they began to figure out how do we obey these to a T. How do we obey these so well that God will come in and act? And so there were people that would study the law, and they would interpret the law, and one of the things that they would do is they would rank the commandments. What is first? What's second? What's third? What's fourth? And so on. And and that may seem kind of silly to us. It's like, what does it matter? Um, But sometimes you'd have two commandments, and and, and on the surface at least, it would seem that if you obeyed this one, you'd have to disobey this one. So which one's more important? 
So this is why they do this. And there were two uh, major schools of thought on uh, the, the second greatest commandment. Most people agreed on the first greatest commandment, which was the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your, and, 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 and so on. So this was the first greatest commandment. Most people agreed upon that. But the second one was under a great debate. And the two major schools of thought was the school of Hillel and Shammai. If you guys remember back to your ancient Jewish history before Jesus, right? Hillel and Shammai. No, I, I had no clue until I began to look into this in a nerdy way, okay? So you've got, you've got Hillel, and Hillel would say the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself, coming from uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 19. And Shammai would say, no, 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 not love your neighbor as yourself. Be holy as I am holy, So God is holy, so we, his people, who are called out to be a nation of priests, we are called to be holy as God is holy. And he says, that's what we got to do. In fact, it comes in Leviticus chapter 19 earlier. So that's what we should do. This is what we should do. And there was a debate about that. And what do we do when they come into conflict with one another? And so Jesus asked this guy to enter into this debate. How do you rank the commandments? A question that Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus ranked them the exact same way. Love God, love people. He didn't say serve the world, but we think that that's, that's probably a good outworking of that for, our, uh, you know, for what we believe here at Mosaic. But, but love God and love people. And so Jesus said to the man, yeah, you answered correctly. But the man, he's like, okay, I need more than that. So he wanted Jesus to enter into another debate. There was a debate on, okay, if you agree, the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, who's my neighbor? Is it just my next door neighbor? Is it two doors down? Is it three doors down? I mean, is it that band? Are they my neighbor, right? Is it my, my countrymen? Is it only my countrymen? Is it more than that? Where's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? How far do I have to go to show love to my neighbor? Where can I stop? Where, where don't I have to go anymore and show that kind of love? And so here's what the man says. He says, um, or it says, but he, the man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this beautiful story, this famous story that many of us have heard, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And here's how it goes. It says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was a normal uh, road of travel. It was a dangerous road of travel uh, because, as we'll find out, a lot of times robbers were on the road. And it said, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So you've got this man, this regular guy, this guy that everyone could relate to here in this parable. He's doing a normal journey, a a dangerous journey, and he gets taken by robbers, and he gets beaten and stripped. He's half dead. And and kind of the words here uh, let you know that you don't really know if the man's alive or if he's dead. You don't really know what's going on. And so then some people begin to pass by, and it says, now by chance a priest was going down the road. Now when you hear priest... In, in our context, you're thinking religious all-star. I don't know who you might think of, Billy Graham, uh, you know, Mother Teresa, that, that kind of level of person, right? These were the people uh, that God had chosen to represent him to his people so that they could worship, uh, worship God in the way that God had commanded. So you've got this guy. You, you've got a priest heading down the road. And it says, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, what 
How would they rank the commandments? Would they agree with Hillel, love your neighbor, or with Shammai, be holy as I am holy? How would they, what would they say is the most important or the second most important commandment? Be holy. Right? Because, because they saw someone in need, but what if he's dead? See, here's the thing. The way that they interpreted holiness was to be set apart and to be set apart in religious cleanness. I was supposed to be clean in the way that God had commanded, right? I wasn't supposed to touch any pigs, and I wasn't supposed to touch a dead body. And you've got this guy who's laying half dead. What if he is dead? Or what if he's not quite dead yet, and I touch him, and then he dies, and and then I'm still touching him, and now I've become unclean, right? Now I'm no longer holy as God is holy. So they, the Levite and the priest, seeking to honor God, thinking that they are honoring God, they passed by and didn't help the person. Now, the, this, would, this is kind of a normal way that someone would tell a story, a teacher would tell a story. There would be two guys that didn't do it right, and then the third guy would come in. And typically in that day and age, the, the next guy is a regular guy. It's a guy that everyone can relate to. It's one of us, right? The, the religious people, they're not the heroes, but we are, right? Just a Galilean. And then next a Galilean came, or, or next just, uh, you know, a, a, a guy who was a shepherd or, or worked the land. But here's what Jesus said. It says, but a Samaritan. And you need to know that at that moment, the blood began to boil in every person that was listening to Jesus talk. You know, tingling went up their spine. Because the word Samaritan denoted an enemy, an enemy that they hated, an enemy that they hated going back about 700 years, right? Or, or, or even further than that, like, like 900 years, okay? So there was one kingdom of Israel, it, it was the nation that God had chosen, and then after Solomon, David, the great King David's son, after he died, the kingdom split into two. There was a northern kingdom, and there was a southern kingdom. Now, this was a big deal because Israel was supposed to be unified. This was the, the unified people of God representing God to the world as a nation of priests. So first of all, the split, that's a big deal. That's huge. And that the northern kingdom split was a big deal. And then on top of that, the northern king, the first one said, okay, here's the deal. I'm, I'm thinking, I know that we're all supposed to worship in Jerusalem as God has commanded us. Like that's the way we're supposed to worship. But if my people from the north keep going down to the south to worship, then I'm going to lose all my people. And I don't want that. So what he did is he set up two high places where his people could worship, one in the northern part of his kingdom and then one in the southern part of his kingdom in Samaria, Okay. So he's got two places where they can worship so they don't have to go to Jerusalem, which is abhorrent in the sight of God, right? Splitting the people and then causing the people to worship God in a way that was offensive to God. So every northern king, no matter if they were really a pretty good king and did a lot of great things, they were all called evil by God because they all followed in this worship system. So you've got two different kingdoms, and the northern kingdom is, is looked at as an evil kingdom, and then they also do some things uh, in fighting against the southern kingdoms. Things go wrong. It, it's not good. There's a lot of, uh, as Taylor Swift would say, bad blood, right? A lot of bad blood uh, going on between those two, uh, two, I guess now, different nations. And the descendants of the northern kingdom are Samaritans, Samaritans, not Samaritans, Samaritans, okay? So... 
A Samaritan now comes along. Now the crowd doesn't know what's going to happen because this is the enemy. This is the bad guy. This is the butt of every joke. This is the one that obviously God has no favor for. Right? This is someone who is worshiping God, if he's even worshiping God, in a way that is offensive to God. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring down oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus asked, do you you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell upon robbers? Okay, here's, here's the deal. This Samaritan, first of all, shocking twist in the story. You wouldn't believe that a Samaritan could now be the hero. But this Samaritan, not just did he see this person lying there and see them in need, but he had compassion. He cared for this person who was his enemy. He cared for this person so much that he didn't just call 911. He just didn't flag someone down. He didn't just get a hold of someone to come take care of the person. He himself got down, touched the man, bandaged his wounds, put him on his own animal. Then he walked the journey and allowed the man to ride on his animal. And then he took him to an inn and he paid the innkeeper. He took care of him for a little while. And then he said, hey, I'm going to go. Let me give you some more money. And when I come back, if you incur any other expenses as you're taking care of the man, I'm going to repay it. I'm going to come back. So you've got this man who, not just, who didn't just have immediate compassion, But he had long-term compassion, and he continued to serve. He continued to to help him, to love him through this awful circumstance at great cost to himself. He was obviously going somewhere. You know, he, he needed to make a living for his family, and yet he took time aside to take care of this person. It's amazing to me this parable, and, and, and here's what Jesus said. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The guy asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, who proved to be a neighbor to a man like you? And the guy can't even say Samaritan. He said, the one who showed him mercy. That's how much he hated the Samaritans. That's how much disdain he had in his heart for this group of people. He couldn't even say the name. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. You go be like the person you can't even speak their name. You go be like the Samaritan. Crazy. And, and you know, in, in our day and age, this parable would probably take on a different form. You have to understand that Jesus um, spoke first and foremost and most harshly to the religious leaders of his day. Kind of in the way that, probably this is where Paul gets it, but Paul says, we don't judge those outside the church, we judge those inside the church. We need to look at our own selves, we need to look at our own hypocrisy, and we need to call out our own hypocrisy first and foremost. And so Jesus would likely be speaking a parable to us. To, to the Christians of our day, calling us out of our hypocrisy. Don't worry, the Bible is an equal opportunity offender. It's calling us all out of what is comfortable and easy. So Jesus, as he would speak to us, he may tell the story like this. A human, a being, a man, 
probably from Mosaic. One of us, a church attender, a woman, is driving down the road, gets a flat tire. And there's some more circumstances that, that, that go on. Uh, you know, the reason the tire was flat is because someone had, had slashed it and because they, they had kind of gotten into a little scuffle. And so there was some injury going on. But now they're on the side of the road needing help, needing assistance, trying to flag down some people. And a Christian conference speaker is driving by. He sees the person in need, but he says, man, I'm, I'm headed to speak to thousands of people. What's the greater need, the, the one person or the thousands of people that I'm going to speak to? Then he passes by. And then a Protestant pastor begins to pass by, and he's in, her, in a hurry because he's got a counseling meeting that he's late to. I'm not talking about Renault, but he's got a counseling meeting that he's late to. He sees the person and says, well, this person's not a part of my flock, so he passes by. And then along comes a transgendered person. And then along comes a Muslim. Then along comes fill in the blank with whoever else in your mind, in your heart, would be the person who you wouldn't want to help or who you might not even want to help you. And they stop. And they get out. They help the person. They see the person is now in distress they help change the tire that's going on and then they take the person's car to an auto body shop and they they buy them a new tire and they buy them a spare tire and they they buy them AAA so the next time they get uh, uh, stranded on the road they'll have someone to call and then they take the person to the hospital because they found out that this person has some wounds that need to be taken care of and they give them their insurance card and then they realize that this person has some some wounds in their heart and so they have coffee with them every single week for the next year and they begin to speak to their hurts and their pains and the difficulty and and the tragic things that are going on in their life and healing begins to take place. This might be the way that Jesus would tell this parable. And I tell you what, I am the greatest offender. There are people that I have difficulty with. And here's the the wrestle that we still have today. Holiness versus compassion. Righteousness versus mercy. How do we do this? And I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah, we're we're saved by Jesus, but then we have all these other commandments that say, oh, you'll know them by your fruit, and our fruit needs to look like this, and it doesn't need to look like this. So there's lots of things that we need to do as Christians, right? This is what Christians look like, what children of God look like. They they do these certain things, and they don't do these certain things. And so what about when we have a community of people? How how do we deal with this? How do do we approach someone's sin? When When do we not, like... What does that look like? And I think it's really difficult because, because even Jesus says in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, so the call is to be perfect. But let's take a look at the context. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, this beautiful passage of uh, of Scripture that we have here, this amazing message that he gave. He says, you have heard it said, 
You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So you would be like your father, okay? Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies so you can be like God, your father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He doesn't discriminate the sunshine. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now, a tax collector, this is worse than a Samaritan in their mind. Just FYI. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not, do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect in what? Mercy. Love compassion. What about uh, Matthew chapter 9? Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, it says, and when the Pharisees saw what Jesus had done, they said to his disciples, why, do your, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You're beginning to get some context in how Jesus sees being holy as God is holy. Luke 6, 36. Luke 6, 36. Jesus says, be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. Now, this is the Sermon on the Plain. So this is uh, paralleling the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is speaking very sim- a very similar message, but the way that he says it here is, it, rather than be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, be merciful as your Father is merciful. There's a, a quote on the Statue of Liberty, if you guys have ever been there, or you learned it in school, and it says this, give me your tired your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. It's a poem by Emma Lazarus. But I think it comes basically from Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and there you will find rest for your soul. Jesus' words, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all who are weary and heavy laden. And here, I think, would possibly be Jesus' challenge to us. On the surface, by reputation, If our society were to make a decision on who does this better, who accepts the outcast, the the marginalized, the people that are rejected from society best, by reputation, would it be the LGBTQ community or would it be the church? I'm not talking about what would, what would really happen within the communities, because I don't know. I'm not a part of every church community, and I'm not, I, I'm not a part of the LGBTQ community. I, I don't know. But I do know by reputation in our society who would be known more for accepting the marginalized, the outcast. It should be. But, but 
But I don't believe that the church has that reputation. Now, there are churches that do. I think, I think Mosaic does a pretty good job. But it's pretty convicting to me when I look at another group that should have the reputation that the church, or that has the reputation that the church should have. The words of Jesus, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. We as the church have the most amazing opportunity to be a sanctuary of transformation. And I want to think, I want us to really think, what would it look like for us to be a community that accepts everyone where they are, no strings attached, without having to clean up first, because we didn't have to clean up first. Because while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us and invited us into his family. What would it be like for us to become a community where we allowed people to be in process? Where we didn't say, okay, okay, you've been here for a week. Okay, now you've got to have it all right. You have to have everything theologically right. You have to think everything right. You have to say everything right. You have to do everything right. What would it look like to allow someone to be in process? And not just someone who struggles in the way that I struggle, because it's easy for me to have grace for people who struggle similarly to me, because I know how hard it is. I know how difficult it is. But it's harder for me to have grace for people who struggle differently than I do, because I don't get it. I've never been there. I've never struggled with that. I've never wrestled with that. I don't know how hard it is. And, And how about this? What do it look like for us to be a community that allows the Holy Spirit to be the Holy Spirit? Who changes people? Me? No. God changes people. The Spirit of God changes people. I can change nobody. You can change nobody. What would it look like for us to allow the Holy Spirit to change people? And I don't like this. I don't like it because I don't like the timing that the Holy Spirit chooses. I don't like the the, the amount of time that he takes to change people. And I don't like the things that he chooses to change first. I have my own agenda I have my own way that I see for people to look like Jesus, and I'm in my own timeline for them, and it's usually pretty short. What would it look like for us to allow the Holy Spirit to be the Holy Spirit? What would it look like for us to be a neighbor in the way that Jesus demonstrated, in the way that Jesus taught, in the way that Jesus commands us to be a neighbor? What would it look like for us to run a marathon alongside people rather than a sprint? What would it look like? We'd become a sanctuary of transformation. Holiness is a good thing. Righteousness is a good thing. The truth is a good thing. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth is good. It's important. It's necessary. But what I don't want to do is to think about the truth in a way that prevents me from giving mercy, right? There are two ways um, that you keep cows in, in, a, in a pasture, two, two major ways. I'm from Midwest Missouri. We have hills and cows and not very many people. And so I know a thing about cows, okay? So, so Two ways. One way is you build a really good fence, right? You make sure it's high enough. You make sure it's sturdy enough, strong enough. You make sure it has some, something that prevents a cow coming out, maybe a barbed wire or an electric current, right? And if you do that, if you build a good enough fence, the cows will stay in the pasture. They will. There's a second way. You dig an amazing well, and you make sure it's the only well in the area. 
And the cows will continue to stay in the pasture because they need to drink deeply from the well. We as the church have become very good at building fences. There's nothing wrong with a fence. But I think sometimes we've worked so hard at building that fence and making that fence look beautiful that we'd have allowed the well to get overgrown. Here's what Jesus says to a woman at a well. He says, people who drink from that water will get thirsty again. But the one who drinks from the well that I will give him, it will become a spring within him, welling up to eternal life. There's this moment where Jesus says some harsh things in John, and and the crowds begin to leave him. And he looks to his 12 disciples, and he says, are are you going to leave me too? Will you also leave? And Peter says, Jesus, where will we go? You have the words of life. What would it look like for us to be a community that makes the well beautiful? Not that we have to make it beautiful. The well is beautiful. Jesus is beautiful. What would it look like for us to make sure that people can see and drink deeply from the well? This doesn't mean that we don't confront sin. We do. But when we confront sin, as Jesus said, we look at our own sin first. We look at our own sin as worse. And then we help people journey to the well and allow the Spirit of God to do what he does as they drink from the well. The reason that we go back into sin over and over and over is because we haven't drunk deeply. It's a twisted desire. We've got to allow people to be satisfied in the way that God can only satisfy them. Me too. What would it look like? The question that those celebrities asked was a good question. The point that they made was a good point. Enough is enough. There can't be any more like this. We can't allow this to happen. Human life is precious. And so, yeah, if there are some gun laws that are actually helpful... Let's look into that. Let's at least have some scientific studies and figure it out. If there's something helpful, let's do that. If, if, if looking into ISIS is helpful, let's do that. If anti-discrimination laws are helpful, let's look into that. If there are some immigration laws that are helpful, let's look into that. But don't think for a second that that will solve the problem. It won't. The problem is deeper. Those are symptoms. We've got to get to the root issue, and the root issue is a heart issue, And me and you, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We cannot be stopped by the gates of hell. So leaders, come up with a plan. But church, go be ambassadors for Christ. Right? Let's be ambassadors for Jesus. Let's be a sanctuary of transformation, a place where it says, come to me, all you, wherever you are. Don't get cleaned up, no strings attached. Come here, sanctuary, but a place of transformation who says, I love you so much that I'm going to run the marathon journey alongside you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to carry you when you need carrying towards the well and allow you to continue to drink deeply and allow the Spirit of God to be the Spirit of God and to convict you and to change you in His timing. We've got to be a sanctuary of transformation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we looked at it last week, ambassadors of Christ. There are two major keys here. Two major keys that are so beautiful. One is motivation. Paul says, we are controlled by the love of Christ. The love of Christ, Christ controls us. Our motivation is the compassion of Jesus. And our goal is 
God reconciling the world to himself and using us as the ministers, us as the message. Our goal is reconciliation, that people would be reconciled to God. That, that's our goal. We're motivated by compassion with the goal that people would be reconciled. And get this, this, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do, you, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What leads people to repentance? God's kindness. What leads people to reconciliation? God's kindness. We are ambassadors of the kindness of God, motivated by compassion with the goal of reconciliation. We're ambassadors. One of the most beautiful passages of Scripture that, that, that I know of right now, I've passed over it many, many times. It's in Matthew chapter 9. You may want to turn there. It's, it's that good. This is when Jesus is calling different disciples. And it says this, chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man. called Matthew, sitting at a tax booth. What did Matthew do for a living? He was a tax collector. He was the worst of the worst. People hated Samaritans, but they hated tax collectors worse. Tax collectors were traitors. They were the people who said, I'm going to go in with Rome so I can get wealthy, and now I'm going to tax my Jewish people into poverty so I can be wealthy. They were traitors of the nation of Israel. Jesus walks by, and, and as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man. Did you see that? He saw a man. He saw a human being. He saw an image bearer of the God of the universe, someone infinitely valuable. He didn't see a tax collector. He didn't see a job he didn't see a sinner. He saw a man. He saw a person. A person who would, he would call to be one of his disciples. He saw a person who would write one of the four gospel accounts. No one would have guessed that. No one would have thought that because everyone else saw a tax collector. But Jesus saw a person just like the woman at, at the well who was a Samaritan or the woman caught in adultery or any one of his disciples, Peter, as he struggled over and over and over and over again. God sees people, people who need a physician, people who need help. And God is making his appeal through us. So it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God Reconciling the world to himself, right? Making his appeal through us. Now is the time. We are the ambassadors of Christ. We have the answer. The answer to the problem. The problem of the heart. The root issue that will fix all the symptom issues. And so we get the opportunity to be ambassadors to represent Jesus. Can you imagine that? God is making us like himself, like Jesus, which blows my mind. And now we get to represent him to the world. We carry the message we are the ministers. We get the opportunity to say, come to me, come to us, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and we'll point you to Jesus because he's going to give you rest. 
I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you struggle with. I don't care what you think. You are welcome here, and I'm going to love you so much that I'm going to continue with you on the journey. I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to point you to Jesus. I'm going to journey with you, and I'm going to point you to Jesus. I'm going to help you drink deeply from the well of living water, the well that once you drink, you will never be thirsty again, the well that as you begin to be satisfied, it will radically change your life as it is radically changing mine. I can't imagine a more beautiful opportunity, a more beautiful calling, a more amazing, mind-blowing task to be an image bearer of the God of the universe, an ambassador for Christ, showing people that Jesus is the answer. What would it look like? What will Orlando look like as we run the marathon with people, pointing them to Jesus? Heavenly Father, God, we need you because this is beyond us. God, I have my own hypocrisy. I do. And it's blind, it's blind spots. So Lord, I pray that you'd show me, you'd show us our blind spots, our hypocrisy, the things that Jesus would call us out of. Lord, I pray that, that you would help us to be better ambassadors for you. God, that we would, we would see you more clearly, that we would drink more deeply from the well that does not run dry, the well that actually satisfied, that we would be so satisfied in the well that we would want to tell everyone about the well, point everyone to the well, walk with everyone towards the well. Lord, I pray that we would see a person, not a job, not a sin, not a struggle. Lord, that we would see a person, a person whom you died for, that you want to be in, in your kingdom, that we would be inviting people in, ambassadors for you, motivated by love with the goal of reconciliation, knowing that it is your kindness that will lead to repentance. Help us, God, we need you because there's a world, there's a city that's crying out for you. And so we ask these things, we, we plead with you in the most beautiful name ever, ever uttered, Jesus.